0: Whenever a child is born, anyone around will be quick to declare, it's a boy or it's a girl. We do generally understand that gender is something about society and that sex is something biological, which is what the person around, the medical professional, is responding to. But can we confuse ourselves a little bit about this? Let's give that a try. For this, we'll have to start with something that happened in 2008. Now, Kastar Semenya is a South African Olympic gold medalist in middle distance running. Between 2008 and 2009, she showed immense progress in her running, which would generally rouse suspicions for drug, drug use. But at the time, after several media houses raised questions about her appearance, the International Association of Athletics Federations IAAF, made her undergo a sex verification test. It turns out that Semenya probably has Y-chromosomes, which according to the chromosomal sex determination system would categorize her as a male. She also had high testosterone, which is called hyperandrogenism, higher than what is allowed for women to participate in the Olympics. Yes, there's an upper limit. I was shocked as well. Many other athletes have faced this issue. In 2014, Duti Chan was dropped from the Commonwealth Games on the grounds of hyperandrogenism by the Athletic Federation of India. Eventually, Chan was able to go back to sports, and I'll talk about why later. Santhi Sundarajan, a Tamil athlete who won 12 international medals for India. She faced something similar in 2006. It was ruled that she, quote, does not possess the sexual characteristics of a woman, end quote, and asked to not do sports. She returned to her hometown, dejected and depressed. Her career in competitive sports effectively ended at this point. Each of these athletes have very interesting stories and I would urge that you check out their Wikipedia pages or something. But meanwhile, let's try to get into what exactly happened in these incidents and what that tells us about gender and sex. So what do we understand by these two terms? Of course, there has been a lot of work uh, about women's rights and all of that um, across, uh, since a long time. But the question of what is gender or what is sex has been fairly recent. In the 1930s, there was this idea of sex roles. Basically that the world is divided into two. So all human characteristics can be divided into two, attributing one half to men and the other half to women. Margaret Mead, who came up with this theory, kind of, doesn't really question this much. She attributes this difference to the difference in the reproductive roles of men and women and the difference in also physical strength. This is very commonsensical and it was sort of commonsensical also at the time. She doesn't really ask that if it was merely about being able to give birth, Then why is there a hierarchy between men and women? Later in the 40s and 60s, um, in the West, in Europe and US, there was more discussion about status as a matter of sex roles. Now this is very sociological. People's status in society is not something natural, but rather it has something to do with the social structure. This is what we understand as inequality, that men have a higher status in society in many contexts. It was only in 1972 that feminist scholar Anne Oakley, she made the distinction between sex and gender in the way that we understand it today, somewhat. I'll quote her. Sex is a word that refers to the biological differences between male and female, the visible difference in genitalia, the related difference in procreative function. Gender, however, is a matter of culture. It refers to the social classification into masculine and feminine. Now her understanding was that any psychological difference between the sexes were due to social conditioning and really there was no research to support that these differences were based in biology. So sex was universal, right? But gender, as in what is considered to be masculine or feminine, was dependent on society, which also means that it was somewhat arbitrary, it was somewhat random, which is why gender can be different in different societies, in different cultures, countries, cities... I mean, you name it. So, if I say, for example, that men are better than women at math, that is a matter of gender. But if I say that men cannot give birth, and women can, that's a matter of biology. Neither of these claims are actually true, but I'll come to that later. Of course, many feminists do believe, did believe, and probably do believe, that psychological differences could also be a result of biological sex. So when I'm saying that men... Um, are better than women at math, some feminists might believe that that is something inherent about men and women. So that's the idea that psychological differences could be rooted in biological sex. But generally a lot of debates basically were happening about how much gender differences could really be changed. Because if gender differences are societal, if they are socially determined, then we can change society in a way that these differences can be changed. That what is considered to be masculine and what is considered to be feminine can be re-examined. So this was the idea. But even here, still there is no mention of hierarchy or asymmetry between the sexes they were not really talking about why masculine values are considered to be better than feminine values if you think about it this distinction between sex and gender is also somewhat like the distinction between the mind and the body that gender exists in the mind but the body has sex it is also the difference between nature and nurture this idea that you are what you are is dependent on one that one nature which is your brain genes hormones etc and nurture, which is your environment, experience, learning, and so on. At the time when Christine Delphi writes, this is in 1993, she argues that many feminists still assume that sex precedes gender. As if gender is the content and sex is the container. The container cannot be changed. The assumption is that sex comes before gender, and therefore it can explain gender the difference in biology, that is, that women can procreate and men cannot, gives rise to this kind of a division. This was the understanding back then. But really, we have to ask ourselves, if this was the case, the question is, why do we then see this difference everywhere and not just in reproduction? Does the simple matter of being able to give birth and not being able to give birth, does this explain everything about gender in society today? I mean, hear me out. If that were the case, then women who cannot give birth should be able to live with all the benefits that men get, but that clearly does not happen. Some scholars have argued, uh, for example, Levi Strauss, uh, that humans have some inherent need to divide the world into two parts. Derrida, uh, also another scholar, similarly, he argues that we can only see things in opposition to some other things. So masculinity can only exist in opposition to something, which is femininity, and the other way around as well. This is fine, but we come back to that question again. How do we understand the hierarchy between the two genders? None of this explains the hierarchy between the two genders or the two sexes, if if that's what you want to say. I'm not really going to go into why there is a hierarchy between the two sexes and the two genders, uh, because that's a really complicated matter and it would probably take a whole episode on its own. Uh, But I will... For the purposes of this uh, discussion, I will go into what um, is this idea of gender and sex and why it is sort of um, a problem. Now let's try to understand sex itself as a biological truth. In her her book, the book is called Sexing the Body, Foster sterling goes into great detail about how bodies are interpreted to have a particular sex. Now for this, let's go back to the examples of the athletes that we talked about earlier. Castor Semenya was legally female. She was raised as a female from birth and she identified as a female. It can be said that she possibly had androgen insensitivity, which meant that her body did not respond to the testosterone in her blood properly. So in her body, there were testes that produced the testosterone, but because her body was not responding to it, her testes never descended and she developed what is considered female characteristic like breasts, vagina, but no uterus and ovaries. She was asked to undergo hormone therapy to reduce the amount of testosterone in her blood, which meant basically that the progress was due to her biology and that she needed to reduce her performance. Now, of course, there was a lot of backlash to the entire incident because it raised questions about sex and race. Semenya was intersex. She was not a trans woman. As early as 2009, people had been questioning her appearance, saying that she looks like a man and that she was too fast. Her performance had been the first thing that led people to questioning her sex, in addition to how she looked. The question is, had Caster been a gender-conforming, straight-identified white girl who was just faster than other people, would they have invaded her body in this way? There is not even enough evidence to suggest that higher testosterone confers an advantage in athletics. And even if it did, why would such an advantage be unfair? Michael Phelps has long arms, which help him in his sport, but no one suggests that his arms need to be shortened. Now the thing is, IAAF can request that any contender take such tests at any time. It's really up to them. And they include an intensive evaluation by a gynecologist, a geneticist, yeah, just get this, how many people are involved in making this decision, a gynecologist, a geneticist, an an endocrinologist, a psychologist, and an internal medicine specialist. It takes so many people and so many resources to determine whether someone is woman enough to participate in these events. And none of these metrics are enough. These metrics are not enough. This points to some flaw in the biological system that categorizes sex. Now, biologists see sex as made up of several indicators that correlate with each other and a majority of them are continuous. So for sex to be something that every human being can be divided into two categories with, they have to be reduced to one criteria. Okay, now hear me out here. For example, I can say that when a person has a penis, it is likely that I can predict their gender, However, having or not having a penis does not divide people on the basis of whether or not they can give birth. Now, these are two different criteria. One is having or not having a penis and the other is whether or not they can give birth. But both of these criteria do not smoothly divide populations into two parts. Among those who don't have a penis, which we would generally understand to be women, there are many who can give birth and there are many who cannot give birth. It only, this idea of this category of having a penis only distinguishes some of those who cannot have children. The key point is this, whatever bodily characteristics are used to determine sex are already entangled in our ideas about gender, whether it is appearances, hormones or chromosomes. Some feminists, like Judith Butler, would argue that both gender and sex are entirely about perceptions in society, that all of it is a game of how we use language to categorize and describe the world. This is something that marks what queer theory is. There is, of course, some truth to this. This idea that biology trumps all and that it is a decent way to categorize people is also evident when medical professionals attempt to determine the true sex of intersex individuals. They are thinking, look, there is this universal biological binary. We already know this. We already know that the world is made up of men and women only. And we somehow have to fit the intersex individual within it, no matter what our anatomical findings tell us. Really, if you think about it, this is what... In the, medical in the medical sciences is or is not categorized as an exception, right? Whatever is whatever is considered to be an exception is attempted to put in one of the baskets. And there are only two of those, we already know this. We already know this because of our understanding of gender, because of the way we live in society, which is what happens when medical professionals try to divide people in such a manner. So what do, what do medical profesh- professionals do when a child is born? they look at the genitalia and announce, it's a boy or it's a girl. They will do so assuming that if a baby has a penis and testicles, then he is more likely to perform masculine values eventually and vice versa. Sometimes some doctors will be baffled with what sex to assign. And so they'll do it in a somewhat arbitrary manner. There is no rule book for this, to be very honest. But we really have to ask, is this a valid assumption or is it the best way to categorize people? Some other feminists would argue that none of this means that anatomical facts don't exist. They are very much real. And not just simply about how society constructs gender. For example, Lynn Conway, she argues that even gender is not socially constructed at all, but that it is determined by the hormones on the embryonic brain. This is fair, of course. Our bodily anatomy, our brain, our hormones do affect the way we think and feel. But to repeat, the way we understand the human body biologically is not outside of social relations. It is not pure knowledge that is completely objective. Now, there are many more objections and complications to this whole issue. J.K. Rowling wrote at some length about her opinions about biological women, her words, being women or not. Of course she's not even referring to intersex individuals. She's actually referring to transsexual or transgendered individuals, who she does not think can be called women the same way, quote, real women can be called women. For her, including who she thinks are unreal women, we are erasing the vocabulary to discuss the oppression of women. But no one is saying that you cannot use the word woman or identify as one, or talk about the oppression of women. We do this for political reasons and we have to know that the category of women is not so easy to define. I like how Catherine McKinnon puts it. I think she puts it best. I quote her, I always thought, I don't care how someone becomes a woman or a man, it does not matter to me. It's just part of their specificity, their uniqueness, like everyone else's. Anybody who identifies as a woman, wants to be a woman, is going around being a woman. As far as I am concerned. Is a woman. End quote. Whatever sex is, we can say that gender is somewhat of a performance. We may not always be conscious of it, but we pick up cues from the world about how we should be if we are to be considered a man or a woman. I put on makeup, wear feminine clothes, although that's not always true, but I do this because I know that that is how others will recognize me as a woman, which is also something I identify as. This is a cultural language that all of us have picked up over time. If you identify as a woman and the sex assigned to you at birth was female, then there is no issue, you are a cis woman. But you can imagine that if this is the case, being called manly or sir is insulting and even disturbing. This is very likely to happen if someone identifies as a woman but was assigned male at birth for whatever reason biology deems fit at the time, which we already know is not very stable. You are expected to conform to performing your gender as a man would, because that was the sex that was assigned to you. But you don't identify as one. You don't want to make you don't want to perform in that way. This could definitely be distressing for a number of reasons. Of course, I'm not going into those reasons, but one can imagine. If there is one lesson that one can get out of all of this, is to not center what is popularly understood to be womanhood as a concern for feminism. No one can define this really. No one knows what womanhood is. And abolishing gender difference is not going to come from targeting individuals for their gender performances. Even when we're saying women, when we're talking about all women, uh, when we're talking about feminist issues, it's not true that every woman knows what it's like to be every other woman. There is a variety of different experiences within this group, and which, which only complicates the matter further. We would love to live in a world where a person's body does not determine how they are to live the rest of their life. But that world is far away and almost like a pipe dream. Meanwhile, we form solidarities on the basis of our experiences. While we also try to be empathetic to the experiences of another group of people. Really, if you were looking for answers uh, when I'm talking about this, there are any, there aren't any. Um, So I'll most likely be ending the episode here. What I can do is try to make this thing even more confusing the next time.